for joining me, Pete Holterman, for the Credentials Only Podcast, where you are introduced to people who work in sports. Today's guest is Mike Mulcahy, the Assistant Athletic Trainer at the University of Dayton. While his primary role is to work with student athletes physically, Mike is quick to use humor as a tool during treatment. A lot of times when, when kids are coming in to see an athletic trainer, they don't want to be there. So they're nervous, they have an injury, they're uncertain about something. So I feel like it kind of breaks the ice. There are plenty of hours spent in relative obscurity in the training room, but Mike certainly prefers that to having to work in front of a packed arena on game day. Hopefully I'm the Maytag repairman. I mean, honestly, if I'm the Maytag repairman, everybody's happy. The kids are happy, the coaches are happy, the parents are happy, fans are happy. Communication and education are key elements of Mike's approach to working with student athletes. They are also key to his professional development. Throughout my career, I've leaned on veteran athletic trainers, uh, you know, that it, it, it really helped me grow. And I see that now, like part of my, my role here is to pay that forward. So it, it's a strong community, strong bond, and we're all pretty much, we're all in this together for sure, but we're all pretty much dealing with the same stuff. Though Mike's job is to allow these athletes to perform optimally, he takes far more pride in seeing their personal growth. One part that I, I try to really emphasize to the parents as well as to the guys, you're a human being first, you're a son, you're a brother, you're a friend, you know what, you're a student, and then you're an athlete. And a lot of times I think in this climate, it can, that can get overshadowed if you allow it to. Check out credentialsonly.com for show notes that include more information on what we discuss in this episode. And please take a moment to leave a review wherever you are listening. Please enjoy this conversation with University of Dayton Assistant Athletic Trainer Mike Mulcahy on Credentials Only. Mike, thanks for joining me here on Credentials Only. Is it true you tell all the athletes you work with it'll feel better when it stops hurting? Absolutely. If there's Absolute truth in that, right? Think about it. My grandfather, when I was a kid, started in on that. He goes, you know, it'll feel better when it quits hurting. And to this day, 46 years later, it still holds true. What are some of your other go-to lines? Because you've got a whole repertoire that you use when you're working with your athletes in the training room. I mean, I've got all uh, – none of them are good. They're all corny, cheesy, dad jokes, as the guys say. Um, I used a couple of them. Actually, as a matter of fact, this morning, uh, about an hour ago, I was with some players, and I had a kid who couldn't, uh, he couldn't open the, the door to a van, and it was because, you know, the door was stuck, and he was at an angle where he couldn't move it, so long story short, I pulled the door open, and just got in the driver's seat, looked behind me, wearing my mask, of course, and said, wait room, you gotta find it. Um, you know, Sticky Side Down's another go-to of mine. It'll feel better when it quits hurting. It's another one of mine. Um, they just kind of come to me, unfortunately and fortunately both. Um, a lot of eye rolls. Good news is every year I get freshmen to start this new material on. Um, you know, I've looked in the bottom of somebody's foot and said, have you ever looked into your soul? Because I am right now. I mean, just, you know, goofy things like that. Only serious when we got to be and have a lot of fun otherwise. Yeah, anybody who has spent any time with you in the training room or outside of it knows that that's just who you are, these corny jokes. But do you feel it helps you with your job? Tremendously. I think, you know, a lot of times when, when kids are coming in to see an athletic trainer, they don't want to be there. So they're nervous. They have an injury. They're uncertain about something. So I feel like it kind of breaks the ice. Like, hey, you know what? Yeah, this is serious. Yes, this affects your ability to compete. But at the end of the day, too, we're, we're going to get through it. And I think just as far as like setting the tone early on, making them a little bit more at ease um, helps a lot. Now, sometimes I'm not really effective at this and I have to explain my jokes. So when I explain, my, I have to explain my jokes then I know I've like totally crashed and burned. I said it's been a crash. There is actually, and I'll put this in the show notes, there's actually a, a two minute long Instagram post from the Dayton basketball team that they posted last year of, of Mike, Mike Duck. So make sure to check that out. Um, and, and you mentioned dad jokes and calling them dad jokes. And I think that's a good pivot point because working with college athletes, you do have some 
father figure role with a lot of these kids. How is working in a college athletic department necessarily different than if you were just in some sports medicine clinic? Um, you're pretty much with the same group of individuals throughout four years of their lives, not just during games or during practices. So you have a cohort's not the right way to describe it because cohort sounds very generic, but it's, I mean, to me, family. You're with, a lot of the times you're with this group of individuals more than you're with your own family. They're away from their family. And one part that I, I try to really emphasize to the parents as well as to the guys, you're a human being first, you're a son, you're a brother, you're a friend, you know what, you're a student, and then you're an athlete. And a lot of times I think in this climate, it can, that can get overshadowed if you allow it. It really helps to stay grounded in the way of, I, my job is to provide the best possible care for you while you're here. Uh, for any athletic trainer, but I think the different thing is when you're with the group, you know, the pro ranks, the college ranks, and even high school. I mean, a lot of you know, high school athletic trainers, I mean, they're with these kids, you know, for four years. And you build the relationship, you build trust, you start at ground zero. Um, but when they graduate, to me, that's kind of the litmus test is what's your relationship like with them after they leave. Um, so I'd say that's probably the biggest difference. You're obviously going to help them through a lot of ups and downs on the court, but you also do have this unique lens to see them grow through their college career. That has to be something that keeps you coming back year over year. What is it that you get from that college journey and being with these student athletes as they go through those four years? Their character development. Without question, their character development. Who they are when they come in their freshman year, maybe they're nervous, maybe they're full of themselves, maybe they're, I mean, their people are all over the place. But to watch that character development over the course of four years, to me, that keeps me coming back year in and year out. Um, and then, you know, when you first start doing this, you look at it and say, okay, what do you relate, what's your relationship going to be like at the end of four years? You don't necessarily, while you're in the, in the throes of January and you're thinking, and just the grind day in and day out. I think, for me, when I get to the end of the four years and I look at that and say, holy smoke, this young man's going to, maybe he's going to play professionally. Maybe he's going to go get a job. You know, what, depending upon whatever the, their path of life is, but they get married. They have kids. Staying in contact with them. Staying in contact with their parents. Um, I think that there, to me, that keeps me coming back to it is always, always, always about the people. If it's not about the people, then I think this is the, the wrong business. One of the questions I've asked a few people who work in college athletics who have uh, graced me with their time on this podcast is the incredibly powerful emotions that come with that unbelievable finality of that final game of that senior's career. What is that night like for you? Bittersweet. It's very, very bittersweet. Um, it's bittersweet even, you know, outcome of the contest or you know, the game, whether they win or lose, it, it, regardless, it's bittersweet because you never know, right? Nothing's guaranteed. Maybe that's the last time. This past year is a great example of that. You know, the, the two seniors we had on the team, their last, they didn't even know what was happening. Their very last game occurred and they didn't know it. None of us knew it. Um, so that was more bitter than it was sweet. But at the same point in time, I look at that and I have tremendous amount of grat a tremendous amount of gratitude for being able to be a part of their career for four years or as long as they're, they're with us. Um, so it's emotional. It is definitely emotional. You know, the conference tournament, if you lose and you don't make an NCAA bid or if you in the NCAA tournament, eventually everybody's going to lose but one team. So you see them, they pour their heart and soul into what they're doing on and off the court. You know, between whether it's in the classroom, whether it's extra film session, whether it's getting shots up at, at 10 o'clock at night, whatever that is, they pour their entire life into this. And to see it knowing that it's going to culminate and come to an end, um, everybody knows it's there, but when the emotion or when it actually happens, the emotion attached to that, it's pretty significant. And you touched on this season. I mean, you guys at Dayton had an unbelievable run in men's basketball, and I think 
it, it's a huge rabid fan base that you have to begin with. But I think everybody was pointing towards March. Everybody wanted to get to March. And, and hopefully, and there was a very good chance, you guys could have been playing on the first Monday in April. And that's what everybody who laces up in college hoops, that's what you want to do. To have it taken away because of COVID, how hard was that? And, and how is the team kind of rebounding from that now that some time has passed since everything just stopped on them? Going through it and watching it through the eyes of 18 to 22 year old kids, nothing could ever prepare you for it. As I continue to say, hey, when have you coached through a worldwide pandemic? Yeah, you know, when if, when if I provided medical care through a worldwide pandemic, nobody had it, right? Nobody's done it. But to be there 11.48 a.m. on the very first day of the conference tournament quarterfinals were starting, and the phone rang, and it was, load them up, let's get to the airport, we're leaving New York, they canceled the tournament. Um, to go from that sequence to having a brief team meeting before we loaded the bus and, and watching Coach Grant, uh, you know, communicate to the kids what was going on and, and the staff, and then getting on the bus and just having the quietest, it, it, was, it was the quietest bus ride I've ever been a part of. Um, regardless of wins and losses, it was just silent. And get to the airport, get on the plane, and we're thinking, okay, they canceled the A-10 tournament, maybe we'll do some sort of shell of an NCAA tournament, maybe there's a hope, maybe no fans. Nobody really truly knows, although I think in the pit of everyone's stomach, we had a pretty good indication, and we were literally on the runway, just turned on the runway, when uh, President Mark Emmert from the NCAA had sent a, a notification out saying the tournament had been canceled, and it was a very, very quiet plane ride home. Um, devastating is probably the best way to put it, but perspective two, one thing I will say is, looking back on it, a tremendous amount of gratitude to have gone 29 and two in the overall season, 18 and 0, undefeated in the conference. National Player of the Year, Obi Toppin. National Coach of the Year, Anthony Grant. Um, unbelievable talented chemistry uh, within the group of guys that we had, um, and still have, and what they built. And I look at this too. I mean, people, when I first started at UD in 2013, to now, and I think the amount of success that has grown here at UD in the program with different coaches. I mean, that, that speaks volumes to me about the culture and character of this place as well as the, the culture and character of the, the individuals who've come through here, like, like Kyle Davis's, the Future Smiths, Kendall Pollard. I could go through all these names and throw it, you know, throw those names out. Um, and to where we're at right now with the, the caretakers of the program, eventually we'll all be gone and somebody else will be here and take over. It's, it speaks volumes about the university's age. It's interesting, too, to hear you talk about this because – you aren't going to call a play. You're not going to make a basket, but there is, you're, you're oozing with this personal pride and in your role as an athletic trainer, you still influence a lot of what happens on the court. So what is that? You, we talked about the emotional tie with the athletes, but just in general, having your role in that overall success of the team, how do you take that responsibility? So, a friend, mutual friend of yours and I, a, a very good friend, um, Dr. Bob Berger. This is day in and day out. Kind of a guideline that I think about when I make those decisions and knowing that responsibility. He told me a long time ago when I was very wet behind the ears, there's what you can do and there's what you should do. You can do lots of things. You can say, ah, it's not that important or ah, it's not that hurt or ah, it's not that important, right? You can say that, but you have ethics, you stand for the right things, you're really truly about the, the individual's overall health. If you're doing what you should do, am I treating these players the way I would want my children to be treated? Am I treating these players in, re, in the way that um, their parents expect them to be treated? They're individuals first, right? So, human beings. so to me, to have that responsibility, yes, I want to win. Oh, dear Lord, I want to win. But I also don't want to win at all costs. You know, um, so it's tempering that. And sometimes you can get a situation where a young man may say, no, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good, and they're not, right? And you got to choke their motor. And you also have to have the experience to say, okay, I understand you're scared. I understand you have concern. 
and explaining and educating them on the injury and explaining to them why it is okay for them to participate and knowing that barometer. And it's not just me. There's a multitude of people that are involved. Um, but I, I take it extremely seriously knowing the work that they put into it and what my role is. How do I help them be the best version of themselves, you know, on and off the court? And you get kind of, I imagine from time to time and, and maybe not recently, cause I know the coaches you've worked with probably aren't this tight, but there are no doubt situations of people in your role who hear from coaches. We got to get that guy healthy. You got to get him back on the court and the players are saying, I'm fine. I'm fine. How do you straddle that tough, tough, very fine line of that responsibility you have to the well-being of the athlete and the interests of the player, the coach, and the team? Uh, great question. And I, I think that it comes down to um, communication. It comes down to building relationships. And you can't constantly say, okay, every time Mike shows up, he's going to deliver bad news. You know, or – He's going to say, this guy's out or that guy's out. You have to be able to communicate. You have to be able to educate. A lot of times I'll get out, uh, I have an app on my iPad, and I'll go through and explain the injury, or I'll go through why there's a restriction or what our plan is, long-term, short-term goals. And as long as you educate and continue the dialogue along the way as to what is going on and why we're doing what we're doing, it doesn't mean that anybody has to like it. You know, I don't like it. But at the end of the day, um, if you haven't done that up front, if you haven't done the communication and the education, it's going to make it much more challenging. Usually when you do that, now there's surprises, don't get me wrong. There are surprises along the way. Uh, and those you have to navigate the same way, just it makes it a little bit more rough. Um, but I think that's the key right there is if, if I walk into a coach's office like, oh, here he comes again, and that's the only time I walk in to deliver bad news, right? Or uh, even with a player, you know, I mean, a player, they, they, they're, they're smart, they can tell. Um, I, that, that's probably the best single way I can say I've navigated that is to say, Hey, this is what's going on. This is what we're doing. This is why to be able to get you back out on the court as safely and as quickly as possible. And Pete, as long as the days are, the physiology and anatomy has not changed the human body. So people heal at different rates and, um, people, you know, respond differently to injuries. Aside from getting those athletes healthy and prepared to play, what can you do in your role as an athletic trainer to help the coaches and get the team ready? You have to look at the plan. Like, how are we getting them acclimated when they come back? Are they, is the volume too high? How, how, what are they lifting? How much do they lift? In my role as a strength and conditioning coach, I've been blessed to work with some unbelievable strength and conditioning coaches. Um, I, I, I think they're, evaluation of you know the kids when they come to campus and saying okay this young man may have a foot old foot injury we need to get him orthotics or this kid's got you know weak quads tight hamstrings it's a recipe for a knee knee issue you identify those and you look at it and say okay how do we prevent this from being a patella tendinopathy how do you prevent this from being um a, a hip dysplasia issue i mean as much as you possibly can you educate and you you evaluate these guys when they come in on what can we prevent from what they have versus um, what can we prevent from getting worse. You do have a level of confidence with the athletes and the time you spend with them. And the training room can be a little bit of a safe haven, a sanctuary for players. How do you navigate getting that confidence, but also being the eyes and ears for the coaches from things they might not otherwise be aware of. Know what's relevant and know what is not. Uh, um, you hear stuff, you see stuff, and some of it's kids being kids. It's, it needs to be a, an environment where they can be themselves and not have to you know, worry per se about, um, you know, you hear something that like maybe incidental, right? You know, I don't even really have a good example. Versus there's other situations where, you know, now this might be, there might be something to this and, you know, you kind of track it down, have a conversation with the, the private conversation with the individual. And um, it's just a feel thing too. They, they need to be comfortable in like in the athletic training room and coming in the athletic training room. Um, and also you got to keep in mind that sometimes there's multiple sports, actually a lot of the times there's multiple sports in at the same time. Um, and you know, the, 
sometimes it'll be something, something as simple as, um, you know, hey, check it. Like, you know, you say something along those lines and they know what that means. Um, but also there, there's a certain level of, of respect that is expected in here and we never have really have an issue with that. And I have an issue that in my entire career I've been fortunate. I've had maybe two or three instances where I had to tell somebody to read the training. There are kind of different facets to what you do. I want to start with the prevention piece. How do you work to keep the guys healthy? It all starts in the weight room for me um, and the balance. They come in. If you don't have good technique, we say build a foundation. I use all these cliches. If you don't have a solid foundation and solid technique, you're pretty much building on a house of cards. If you have a pattern of movement that is dysfunctional and I strengthen you in that pattern, then all I'm doing is creating more dysfunction. So going through a screening process and saying, uh, you know, kind of my analogy earlier, weak quads, tight hamstrings, we have to identify that, we have to address it. How do we address it? Well, prevention includes, you know, flexibility. Prevention includes maybe some modalities, maybe some dry needling, maybe some, um, Yoga, there's a lot of different things that it would potentially entail. Um, and I also utilize our physical therapist to help me with that as well here in, in the office. Identifying those issues and how do we best address them before they come up. Uh, weak posterior shoulder. You get, you, know, anterior, you get anterior shoulder pain, usually it's for a weak posterior shoulder. Um, I think that, that that's probably the single most effective way to prevent injury. Then there's the recovery. It's a hard, long season. And, and any sport, not just basketball. All of these sports play long seasons. And all of them go through tough times of games, you know, quick turnarounds. A couple games over three days for basketball. Baseball could go out and play three, four games in a weekend. And then you add in a plane ride, a bus ride, getting home from that. Sometimes getting home in the wee hours of the morning. How do you handle the recovery component? It's challenging. Um, I'm like a traveling circus when we go on the road. I mean, I take enough gear that it's like we're traveling with an NFL football team for, for you know, 12 to 15 guys. Um, a lot of it is they feel better after they go through the recovery. So they, they, there's buy-in, right? You have recovery boots, compression boots um, which, that we use. We use game readies. We use massage. We use... Um, stem, ultrasound, dry needling. There's a lot of different techniques depending upon what's going on with the individual health recovery, joint mobilization. Uh, it's extremely important. The biggest challenge for, for me, and as this has held true the entire time with basketball, is the conference tournament. Conference tournament is more difficult to deal with than the NCAA tournament or even an, an exempt, you know, one to, to uh, an exempt tournament. And the reason being is, unless you secure a double buy, you could be playing five games in five days. And in 2000, well, I'm dating myself, 2003, we had to do that with, it was Fad Mata at Xavier. We had four games in four days, and the only way of making the NCAA tournament would have been to win it, uh, the, the conference tournament. And uh, that was a lot of recovery, a lot of, a lot of work. And I learned, I learned early on that the investment that it was going to take for the team be able to be at their best and to see their end result, not just from winning the curve, but to see the end result where guys played at a peak level um, and having a hand in that, that, that was pretty cool. The other component, and this is probably where people think of your role more, is somebody's hurt, put them back together. What is the process like in general? Because I know it's very nuanced depending on the athlete, depending on the injury, but what is that rehabilitation process like? First, just like anything else, no matter what the field is, you have to identify what the problem is. So you have to accurately identify the injury. Part of that's with the clinical evaluation, uh, where you're actually laying your hands on them, stressing the joint, palpating, uh, getting feedback from the patient. The other part of that is the diagnostic, x-ray, MRI, CAT scan, whatever's indicated for that specific injury. Once you identify the problem, then you can formulate a plan. Um, so I, I, that's the, probably the, the, the biggest challenge is making sure you have an accurate diagnosis because once you do, then you can go into and say, okay, this is what we're going to do. This is, we need to have rehab for this. We need to have surgery for this. We need to have 
rest time for this, whatever it is, and then you plan out from there. So, you know, the early on evaluation is the biggest goal, uh, getting the accurate diagnosis and then formulating a plan from there. When you're in season, it's pretty easy because you're around the guys all the time. So if you're having to rehab someone, you're going to see them every day. A unique aspect of working in college athletics is there will be times where they go home for a summer break or a spring break or different chunks of time. What are the steps you take to keep that athlete on track, even if they're not going to be seeing you and bugged by you every day to do the right things? Communication, iconic communication. I've learned that the newer generation of student athletes that are coming up now are FaceTimer, and I am not. I'm more of an old timer. Um, so, you know, so I'll get a FaceTime request, and I, depend, I could be in my car, I could be at a grocery store, wherever. But there's a lot of value to having the FaceTime because I can see them, I can talk to them, I can see their body language, and sometimes you can even. Um, do an evaluation, you know, it's like a primary care physician can do telemedicine. You can do that with a student athlete. And then the other part is identifying, um, I've had lots of situations in, in my career where players have been different places across the country where I can reach out to other college athletic trainers and say, hey, I have somebody in your geographical location. Who would you use locally to work with this basketball player? Because knowing that there's some nuances to having somebody who can actually work with a high-level athlete. Um, so there's a lot of resources, a great network of athletic trainers across the country that I've been able to rely on for that as well. Any tricks or tips for keeping athletes motivated when they have to go through it? And sometimes, you know, some rehabs are pretty short and they can see the finish line of I can get back on the court in a couple of weeks. Sometimes it's a long process. How do you keep them engaged? Recognize it. Totally recognize it call it out for what it is. Uh, we had a young man who it was documented, I, so I can say it, I, Ryan Mikesell had bilateral hip surgery when he was here. Bilateral hip surgery, think about that. I mean, that's, the recovery was gonna be lengthy um, and it needed to happen. But also I think the worst thing you can do is say, uh, you'll, you'll be better tomorrow or it'll be better in two weeks or putting a, you know, a timetable on that. No, you know what, this stinks. You're allowed to say, this stinks. This is horrible, this is a bad experience. I don't wanna go through this not fair you have to it's kind of almost like the stage of the grieving and i think you have to uh, not just allow it but even sort of promote it because i think it's healthy and you know an acl rehab it could be anywhere from six to nine months in recovery that's a long time they lose their season they're on crutches it could be snowing outside um you know they got to they got to get around they can't bend their knee rehab's painful you know but they still have a full academic load that stinks that's not fair and it's not right. And I think it's important for them to be able to, to vocalize that um, for their own mental health, you know, as much as it is for, for their physical healing as well. There are a lot of people who can do the, the anatomy part, the physiology part, like you said. Do you think that that's what separates people in your field, though, the ones who can have that relationship and have that bond to help the player through it mentally and emotionally? I think for longevity's standpoint, um, yeah, I, I definitely, like I said earlier, the anatomy has not changed. How do you relate to people? How do you relate to people who are having a hard day? You know, so like I have a, a good friend of mine who is a fire chief. And he's like, when I show up, people are usually having the worst day of their life, right? Well, we're not that dramatic and that extreme in here, but usually when you need an athletic trainer and you're in this environment, you play through grade school, you played through high school, you played through, you know, to get to college and AAU ball, X, Y, and Z, and maybe you've never had an injury. That's the first time you've been injured. You're like, I need an athletic trainer. You know, I, I have injury and I can't do what I want to do. And I, all I want to do is get back. Well, if you don't have that relationship or you don't have that the trust, it's going to be a lot more difficult for you to do it. That's where I always go back to it. It's always, always, always about the you know, um, and it's not about the people, then I think this is the wrong business. To be. A regular practice day during the regular season for basketball, what's it typically like for you? A typical day would be show up to the athletic training room. Um, I, we have a, a, a younger son, drop him off at school. I get up here in the morning, um, kind of get the lay to land. I may have some doctor's appointments. I may have um, some charts. I may have some uh, other some rehabs. 
Uh, I might have a meetings. I mean, there's all kinds of different things that kind of happen in the morning. Usually around noon is when I start to shut down uh, the administrative and the, the clinical side of just wide open hours to shifting and focusing it more towards basketball. Um, are guys going to come in? Do I have somebody who's going to get some early work, go get some free throws in, do some extra shooting and whatnot? Are they going to come in and need to be ready early? Um, you know, do I need to communicate something to coach? Do I need to communicate something to our athletic director? You know, so every day is a little bit different. But once I kind of hit that 12 o'clock mark, my, my eyes are focused solely on what do I need to do in order to have them ready for practice. Um, you know, there's, obviously there's ankle taping. There's flexibility stretching. There's some guys who, will do, who are on maintenance programs, I call it prehab, where they're doing things like maybe poster shoulder work or quad strengthening, whatever. They come in and do that. Be monitor, supervise that. Um, communication with kids. Maybe a kid's got a cold, uh, a sinus infection, and you try to you know, navigate those. Uh, every day is a little bit different. Then I, once we get to the practice and we get on the court, um, our strength coach, we, we go through a warm-up, and then um, I walk around. I just walk around practice. Sometimes I'll walk around, I'll crack jokes. Sometimes I'll walk around, make fun of a jump shot, although I have no business making fun of a jump shot because <laughs> I can't shoot a basketball to save my life. Um, and, you know, and engage with the kids when and where it's appropriate. And sometimes it's a gauge on how intense the practice is. If it's an intense practice, then you know to kind of dial it back. If it's a little lighter, then, you know, you can do that. Um, and then once practice is over. Um, and that practice is usually how long? Uh, I'd say probably between two to two and a half hours. It just okay. depends on where we are in the season. Usually it's longer early on and it's, um, it gets shorter as the, the year goes on towards the conference tournament. Um, and then, you know, afterwards stretch, uh, kind of gauge guys and see if anybody's got anything new. Uh, and it's one of those other things where if you constantly say, are you okay? How do you feel? How do you feel? Are you sure you feel okay? Are you sure? No, it's just like, you know, how are you feeling? And just a simple somebody's got something that's bothering them, then, you know, you address it, uh, formulate a plan and start preparing for the next day. Conversely at game day, you guys play 30, 35 games a year. Each one's different time of day, what they play and everything. But in, in general, how many hours before the game are you there working with guys? And I know there's a shoot around and a walkthrough and all that as well. So how do you structure those days? Oh boy. Those are usually game days are usually somewhere I'd say probably around 11 hour days. Um, so if we tip it, let's just say seven, um, I'm usually there somewhere between 12 and 12:30, and that means that uh, we would have some pre-early work on maybe around one. Shoot around would be at two. Pre-game meal would be at three. We shut down our area to where it's just the guys allowed in our facility. The entire game day, but in the athletic training room, um, that's usually happens right around four four thirty. So then your your game days in a lot of ways are easier than they're longer, but easier than practice day. Um, and you know a lot of massage, a lot of heat, a lot of uh, dry needling, a lot of uh, you know every every guy's got some kind of nuanced thing. Go downstairs. Um, after I finish taping the guys, uh, you know, I, I go check on the referees, make sure they're good, uh, check on the visiting team, make sure they're good. And then, um, I go sit at the end of the bench and chew gum so that, you know, I don't say anything I'm not supposed to do an official. And also, um, you know, my, my job then is just to watch and monitor the court. You know, you go out and survey and make sure you take any hazards out of the way and make sure that everything's safe for everybody to participate. Um. Uh, Sometimes you see confetti fall from the, you know, you think you get it all up, there's a piece on the floor, something, you know, stuff like that, little things like a chair out of place, something just to move it. And then hopefully I'm the Maytag repairman. I mean, honestly, if I'm the Maytag repairman, everybody's happy. The kids are happy, the coaches are happy, the parents are happy, fans are happy, you know, and we've got uh, the ability to, uh, to compete and nobody gets hurt and we go home. Has your game day attire changed during your career? Tremendously. <laughs> oh, great question. Um, yeah, it's changed. I, uh, I, I brought that up. When early on in my career, I wore a suit on the bench. I have ruined three suits, uh, ruined three suits to where they couldn't. One had a, a blood stain in them that I couldn't get out of the, the suit jacket. 
that was closed. The other two, um, four, one was at uh, Millette Hall in Miami uh, University, and I was sitting in a metal chair, and my pant leg got caught on a jagged piece of metal where my, my suit pants had gotten caught on it, and somebody got hurt on the court, and I stood up to get a better angle of what was going on, and I heard this rip. And luckily, it was on the out seam of the leg. It, was, it wasn't on the in seam. It wasn't, you know, in some precarious position. <laughs> um, so, and that one, I, I remember that one very distinctly because that was a favorite suit of mine. That was a, that, that was a yeah, I like that suit. And then um, there was another instance at Cintas Center where I had, uh, my jacket got caught. I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm done with this. So when I, um, I was probably, what, 2000, well, 2013, uh, I transitioned. I now wear you see me wear a polo shirt and khakis and um, you know, athletic training attire, if you will. But it's a much more functional, especially with what I'm doing if I have to do something in-game. Uh, I wear a pullover, too, just in case I do have some blood. You know, something happens, I take my pullover off. Uh, and, yeah, so, yes, it's changed. It's evolved, and it's uh, a lot more uh, economically friendly to do the uh, Mulcahy budget. You work with the basketball team day in and day out, but there are a number of other sports at the University of Dayton and I have to think the, the wear and tear and high use of a, a shoulder for a baseball pitcher is completely different than what a swimmer is going through than a golfer, than the basketball guys you're working with. How do you keep yourself on your toes to deal with all these different things? Because while your primary concern is that basketball team, you are ultimately working with all these athletes, aren't you? Absolutely. Um, you, we have a staff that we have staff that have a lot of experience and we have a younger staff that are gaining experience. And I think that one of the, the benefits to helping me stay on my game is having conversations with other athletic trainers or being involved with other athletic trainers and their rehabilitation. Um, you know, I've, I, a good example may be, um, Let's say somebody runs into a wall of, okay, I'm doing this rehab and it doesn't, I might get anywhere. Um, we're, we're having a complication with, with progression. Okay, well, let's sit down, let's talk about it. And through that conversation, that kind of helps you problem solve and come up with some suggestions and some ideas. Uh, because there's nobody who is the 100% foremost authority uh, in athletic training in, in the way of saying, I know everything there is to know. I can't get better. Um, I, I'm good. You know, I, I think the day that that happens is the day out there, what you are, if you're a brain surgeon or if you change, you know, oil at a, a mechanic shop, that's the day to stop doing what you're doing. So the di ongoing dialogue and unique cases, and not just in orthopedics, but also in general medicine, you know, we've got a variety of different issues and injuries that come through the athletic training room. Uh, but we also have a very, very healthy amount of illness that will come through the and being able to, to work through those uh, through history taking and, and talking to the kids and also talking to the rest of the staff and kind of bouncing ideas off of each other. What about globally? And you talk, you would call a, a colleague at another school or something. How much is this a community of you guys are exchanging information between universities even? A lot. There, that happens a, a, quite a bit. Um, especially during the pandemic, you know, we're all trying to, to compare notes and are we doing something that can help somebody else or somebody else does something that can help us? Um, and having that dialogue, the College Athletic Training Society, CATS, is a phenomenal organization because that connects a lot of different athletic trainers across the country. Um, you get discussion groups and listservs, but it's different to pick the phone up and call somebody and say, hey, I've got this problem, I've got this issue. Um, without violating, you know, you, you can very easily do it without giving names, talking specifics with regards to HIPAA, and say, have you ever run into this? And throughout my career, I've leaned on veteran athletic trainers, uh, you know, that it, it, it really helped me grow, and I see that now, like, part of my, my role here is to pay that forward, you know what I'm saying, like, um, and, but I still rely on older athletic trainers that have more experience than I do. And I also re, you know, rely on the younger athletic trainers who are not that far removed from school. So it, it's a strong community, strong bond, and we're all pretty much, uh, we're all in this together for sure, but we're all pretty much dealing with the same stuff. Do you have like 
a, a mental Rolodex of, I remember this basketball player recovered from an Achilles very successfully, or I saw this shoulder thing, or is that just kind of somewhere in, in the next to the jokes in your brain? It is if I can find it. Um, it's definitely a, something that, that I, I have. It's something that I definitely call on. Um, I can't say that it's um, – it, it sometimes can be a challenge to remember who, who the specific individual was, or, you know, what the, uh, who the surgeon may have been. But it definitely experienced, you know, you're like, oh, yeah, that worked with this situation. And maybe it'll work in this situation. Maybe it won't. But, you know, everyone you learn from something. On the Dayton Athletics website, there's a hot mess of initials after your name. I, I need some explanations here. The first is oh. M-A. That's not short for, for ma'am. Um, <laughs> that is a Master of Arts in Sports Medicine, Athletic Training. And then I guess the AT is probably Athletic Training. AT means I'm licensed in the state of Ohio to practice athletic. EMT, is that what I think it is? It is, exactly. What do you think it is? Uh, emergency medical technician something? I don't hey, know. Good, look at you. Yeah, yeah well done. Now, I, it, there's so much of this prehab and rehab that you do, but there are instances where there is a traumatic injury. Is that pretty rare, though, for an athletic trainer to have that EMT certification? Yes and no. There's a lot of it's. It's funny. There was a, an athletic trainer that um, that told me when I went after the EMT certification to go get the EMT certification. He said obstetrics and gynecology, right? Which you don't think about, you know, delivering babies and whatnot. But EMTs they train you that, and um, mental health emergencies, where he says there's probably the two biggest differences as far as being able to deal with a situation. Um, from an athletic training standpoint versus an standpoint. And I found that to be somewhat true, but I learned a lot more in regards of the public health. What do you do in a diabetic emergency? What do you do in a um, you know, motor vehicle accident? Which athletic trainers aren't necessarily, unless you're working in motorsports, you know what I mean? You're not going to have a, um, an MBA. But to teach you triage, to teach you um, how to deal in those acute situations, you hope you never have to call on that. Um, but the, the, the preparation of that has helped me. And there have been, I'd like to say more than, than I care to, to recall, um, acute situations that have, that have occurred. Um, I've only had to do CPR once um, in my career and luckily had a, a positive outcome. Um, I'm knocking on wood, by the way. You know, but you always have to be prepared. You always have to know the what is scenario. And Bill Walker, who was, for years, the uh, director of sports medicine, associate athletic director for sports medicine at University of Cincinnati. He really provided a good example of what would you do in this situation if this happened? And my students used to hate me for this because I'd sit there and I'd tell them, okay, so right now, let's say all the cables to the jumbotron to the scoreboard, let's say all those cables snap and they fell and they hit the floor. Right now, you know, the, the, the scoreboard's on the floor, it's on top of people. What would you do? What would you do? Let's say a tornado is coming, you know, and your job is to provide health and safety. What would you do? Let's say in this day and age too, everybody has to be prepared. Let's say there's a, um, a lunatic who has ill, Ill will towards people. Um, what would you do? How would you react? You know, let's say three people go down at the same time. How would you decide who you're going to help first? That, that's happened. I mean, I've been at a, a JV, my own son's JV high school football game. You had next occur at the same time. Um, so the emergency medicine piece definitely comes into play. Now, I have the EMT credential. I can't sit here and tell you, like, I don't ride around on an ambulance with lights and sirens. Um, but it's educational for me, and I've used a lot of what I have um, learned in those classes and it's transitioned into the sports medicine world. The last acronym after your name is CISM. What's that? Yep. Critical Incident Stress Management. Um, to the end of what we're, we were talking about, the, the CISM, there is a group of individuals in the state of Ohio, each state has this, um, that are called out in the event that there is a traumatic issue or um, 
or injury that an athletic trainer has to deal with. And it's more of a compassionate role, more of a, um, a role of support that you're able to provide with another group of people who are trained in this for when that occurs. You know, we're so busy taking care of everyone else, meaning the student athletes, parents, families, coaches, and whatnot, that we also have to stop and say, okay, how do we provide a level of compassion and care for each other? And somebody may go through something, and then this, this happened with me in 2000, 2016, um, May 12, 2016, and we had uh, a player of ours, uh, Steve McElvain, who was in Fort Wayne at home, and he passed away from a um, cardiac issue. And when that happened, the CISM team was phenomenal. Um, that's a phone call that you never, ever, ever want to get. And you hear about it, and you, you know, you think, okay, do all the preventative stuff in the world. You do all these tests. You do all of this screens. At the end of the day, we're not in charge. And um, you can't help but kind of go back and think, you know, Okay, what what can we do better? What can what you know? I, I still to this day, I mean, every day, you know, I Steve is in my office. Um, a picture of Steve is up in my office. And, you know, that's what, kind of a barometer of am I doing everything I possibly can? And I struggle because you can't you know accept the outcome. You talk about grief, right? But the outcome that outcome doesn't change. But I went through and reviewed, and we talked, and we met. Um, and this may be more than what you want for this podcast, but I, I think that it, it's, you know, you're always evaluating how do we get better? How do we get better? And we have, but I also, at the end of the day, too, it's not, um, I'm at peace with it because I also know, I've talked to dozens and dozens of doctors just about what did, what could we have done? What could, how we, and they, they've all said the same thing, this is not preventable. This is not something that could have been changed. So it stinks because the outcome is still the outcome. You know, great kid, unbelievable great kid. Smile, walk into a room, and just light up the entire room. Unbelievable young man, and it's not fair. It's not right. Um, so, anyway. And, and that's obviously a, a terrible outcome, but you do see that a lot with even just an injury where someone loses the last month of their college career or whatever it is that takes them away, and there has to be – because of the investment you put into it, it has to be emotionally draining. How do you keep yourself balanced? And knowing the hours you keep as well, you're, those 11-hour game days and the road trips, it's, it's a lot to take on. What do you do for your own self-care? Well, I married a saint. Um, she puts up with me because I'm, I'm as, as corny as I am at work. I'm just as corny at home. Um, my family, you know, our, our two boys and my wife, that's my 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 go-to because you, know, you got to decompress. You got to be able to let it go. Um, you have to be able to get away from it. And also, our, uh, you know, the people that I work with, um, you know, in, in the athletic training room, our physicians, uh, the administration. You know, it, it is it always is about people. And I think as long as you can talk to them and walk through things. Um, that's important to be able to do. The worst thing you can do is internalize frustration or um, you're sympathetic to a young man's situation. If something un unfortunate were to happen, uh, you have to be able to process that, understand it, intervene and help where you can, and then also understand that, like I said earlier, anatomy and physiology is not changed. You do the very best you can, and sometimes that may mean, you know, seeing a, a, a three or four different doctors or trying to exhaust all possible things for, for the young individual. Um, but at the end of the day, we're, you're going to do what's right by them. And it may mean what you're doing is right, but it doesn't mean that you have to like it. I have a, a unique perspective on this, having worked in tennis and international on the tennis circuits. They're not called athletic trainers, the people who do the role, which I think <laughs> is very similar to what you're doing they're very clear that they're physiotherapists. How is a physiotherapist different or the same as an athletic trainer? Um, it comes down to education. I think more than anything, I mean, you say a physiotherapist, and I hear that, I think, European. Um, 
in a lot of ways, we've stolen from the states what the European model has been with the physios, um, and vice versa. There's an exchange to where they've taken stuff that we do in the states and they, you know, use it over there. I think physio, um, to me, probably the biggest difference would be the certification process. You know, for a while we had a, a mutual understanding that if you were a certified athletic trainer in the United States and you were Canadian and you had a certification, the Canadian equivalent certification, then it would be um, uh, accepted. Um, there, but there's been some changes as far as the education process goes. And, um, I don't know that that is necessarily, I, I'm not as current on that as I probably should be. I don't know that that's the case. But I do know that we have a number of guys that go across, you know, overseas and play. And they'll have a physio, and um, their experiences are different than what they've had here. And sometimes you're trying to help them understand, you know, what, what their experience there is, is just different. doesn't mean it's wrong. It's just different. So different techniques. Um, and like I said, there's a good exchange between physios and athletic trainers as far as what works and what doesn't work. What is an ATC spotter? An ATC spotter are essentially eyes in the sky uh, at NFL games. There is also now a model that's being followed in colleges. So SEC also has them, uh, Big Ten has them, uh, Mid-American Conference even has them. And essentially what I, in that role, that capacity, um, I usually will go to anywhere between two to six games a season, at that NFL season, and my job is to look for head neck injuries that occur during the course of the game. Um, we have direct communication to the officials. We have direct communication to the medical uh, staff on the sidelines. We also have our own video uh, tech, they call them IVRS techs, and their ability to change angles of the cameras. We're able to look at things differently. We're able to slow stuff down. Um, and the idea there is to eliminate head neck injuries in the NFL, if we think something needs to be evaluated, we can stop the game, call down, get the player off the field, get them evaluated. Um, so I got involved with that, I guess that's been three years now, um, that I've been doing that. And there's a group of guys that, that, that are uh, involved in that process, and it just I sort of fell into it. And you say eye in the sky, are you in a production truck watching those monitors? Are you in the stadium where are you situated for that we're in the stadium um we are in uh, a booth with the clock operators so it's you have instant replay on one side of us you have clock operators and the play clock operator in front of us the two spotters and the two techs were all in a, a booth with a, a door that closes and um yeah we're all in there together so we we're actually in the stadium watching it live through binoculars as well as through multiple video monitors. There's a reputation among some in football that they're very resistant to change. How was this embraced early on, and has that, have, has that role been warmed up to over the years? Definitely. Um, I, I definitely think it has. We had, when we first started, they have one spotter per game, and that's a lot to watch. Because if you're documenting, you're looking for one, during one play, another play is occurring. So the NFL has been phenomenal. They have actually grown the program to where you have two spotters. Somebody takes the home team, somebody takes the visiting team, two techs, for the obvious reasons of being able to watch multiple angles of video. Um, and then also, you know, we are brought into the, the organ or brought into the stadium by the NFL. We don't work for a team. You know, we're NFL. So our job is to, regardless of, of who's on the field, we're looking for the same thing across the board. So you look at the, the infancy of the NFL spotting program to where it is right now, it has grown tremendously. And it has been very well received because, you know, sometimes, you know, in the heat of a, a game, whether it's NFL or whether it's a basketball player, somebody gets hurt, you know, like, we need to look at this and evaluate this. And then they're like, no, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. They may think they're fine, but something we may see, you know, may indicate or may warrant an evaluation. Um, and our job is to notify, obviously, the appropriate medical personnel on the sideline and, and have them looked at. In your line of work, you've got a front row seat to the action, but you're also very close to some incredible athletes and inspirational coaches. Are there any that stand out that you've had the chance to be around and, and just appreciate their greatness close up? 
there have been a lot in my career. There, there's I've been very fortunate to be a part of some amazing programs and amazing teams and amazing coaches. And I was looking at it, and if you get through the coaches that I've I've been fortunate to be a, a part of, I mean, you know, Pete Gillen. That's back when, when we were students a long time ago. Started with Pete, get Prosser, Thad Mata, um, Sean Miller, Chris Mack, Archie Miller, and now Anthony Grant. Um, I still have a picture of Skip up at my desk here every day. I mean, he was like a man who of many, many, many talents and also very, very, very humble. Um, you know, it's like he used to say, if you're in the gym, you're not really at work. You know what I mean? Like, think about that. And think you take it for granted at times you walk in a gym like, oh, we got another practice. No, we, we get to have another practice. You know what I mean? It's, people take it for granted. So, I mean, I look at the coaches that I've worked with. I've been very fortunate and very blessed to work with coaches that allow me to do my job. Uh, you know, there's stress in any of it. But, um, and then players, you talk about inspirational players. I mean, they all are to me in, in different forms or fashion. Um, the first group that I, I worked with way early on at Xavier, um, you know, Brandon Cole, you know, I, I think about what he went through injury-wise, Justin Cage, Justin Dolman, um, some of the experiences going to Anthony Miles, Lionel Chalmers, Romain Sato, and then going through the years, and you've got a Derek Brown, or you've got a um, Jordan Crawford, or, you know, then I, I, I think about the Dayton players that I've worked with. Like I said, the Kendall Kyle, um, Scooch, Charles Cook. Um, you know, there's a, a, a slew of them that have built and paved the way along the way. Daryl Davis, um, you know, to now, you know, Obi Toppin. I got to play the national, or I got to work with the net, not play. Dear Lord, thank God I didn't play. We wouldn't have been 18 and 0, we was in 0 and 18. Um, as I like to say, I have five fouls and I'll use them all at the same time. Um, but Obi Toppin, National Player of the Year, Anthony Grant, National Coach of the Year. I'm pretty lucky to work with some amazing talent. And to have gone to the NCAA tournament, I've been in the NCAA tournament in all of my years of doing basketball with the exception of three. I mean, three years I've not been in the NCAA tournament. I've only been in the NIT once. And that's a lot. I mean, to me, I think about that. I look back on it like, man, I'm, I'm very fortunate. You know, inspiration, Ryan Mikesell, most recently bilateral hip surgery, what he went through, what he overcame. Um, he got to the point where he couldn't really walk. Uh, it was that bad. And he went through it, he did it, he did it the right way. Um, I get inspired by young people all the time because they're like, all right, this is what I got to do, this is how I'm going to do it. And it's not always going to be easy, but most of the time, they come through the other side and they're, they're, they're good. Basketball has been your primary focus, but you have worked with a lot of other athletes. Do you find that there is that same level of inspiration from the coaches and the athletes in these other sports at the collegiate level? Yeah, I, I believe so because it's it used to be you're part of a team, right? And whatever sport it was, I'm on the volleyball team. I'm on the soccer team. I'm on the football team, whatever it is. I'm on the team. Well, now it's, it's evolved to where college sports go almost year-round, right? In some form or fashion, almost year-round. So you're no longer part of the team where basketball season ends, ends in March. You may do some conditioning training for four to six weeks, and then you're off for 12 weeks. We'll see you guys in August. No different than any other sport. You know, there is a program that you're a part of, not a team. You're part of a program. And your part of your job is to be the caretaker of that program and promote the program. Um, anyone who has any pride in, in being a part of the, the program will inspire you. Because how do you be successful? How can you become successful if you're not dialed in, you're not bought in? So you look at that and you say, okay, I have coaches that pour their hearts and souls into their program. Kids that pour their hearts and souls into the program. How can that not inspire you? You know, I want to pour my heart and soul into whatever program I, I'm able to to help. You know, majority of the time that ends up being men's basketball. Um, but, you know, that is inspiring to me. And also leadership. I've worked with amazing, and I don't know if they're going to listen to this or not. So they're Hopefully for them they don't, but um, athletic directors. Some of the athletic directors I've been, I mean, are currently Neil Sullivan, Tim Wobbler, Mike Davinsky, Jeff Bogelson. 
I mean, I think about, you know, those athletic directors, Don Rogers, you know, athletic director. There, there are people that along the way that have really set the tone of the bar for the institutions that they work for, and it trickles down. Um, so I'm extremely fortunate in that regard to work with some amazing big bosses. I close every episode with what I call the set pieces, a lineup of six questions. I've got my answers. Oh, you've done your homework. <laughs> <laughs> All right, here we go then. Podcast mm -hmm. newsletters, you're using Stay Informed and to keep yourself learning, which I know is important to you. Um, actually, I'm not a big newsletter guy, not a big podcast guy, um, but I do have this podcast I follow. It's called Credentials Only. Uh, a guy named Pete Holtzman <laughs> runs it. Um, so I, I, I'm definitely in tune to that. I've seen all of his episodes thus far. Um, pretty good. I think he's got some budding talents, but I would highly recommend following Credentials Only. I got to say, I'm a little surprised you're not doing podcasts because we should, you know, talk about on top of your long days, you've got a long commute living in Cincinnati, but working at the University of Dayton. So I think you, you should listen to credentials only and maybe get some podcast suggestions from the other guests. That's I'll, I'll take that under advisement. <laughs> Social media, your most valuable follows the, the posts. You don't want to miss them. Former students and players for sure. Um, and family. I mean, saying that there's family all, all over, I mean, I, to me, that I don't want to miss those because that, that, that means more to me than anything, family. What are a couple of book recommendations you'd make? There's one book that I've read now three times. It's called It's Your Ship. Um, and it's a pretty good book regarding leadership. It's a pretty good book in, in the way of um, understanding what you are in control of and what you think you're not in control, but really you are. Um, so I'd say that that's probably my, the, the best one I could recommend aside from that. Who's, who's um, the author of that one? Uh, Admiral. I'm going to draw a blank on the spot too. All right. We'll put it in the show. Notes. Admiral, Admiral in the Navy. I mean, you can, you can look it up, but it's, it's, it's your ship. S H I P. Um, Thank you for clarifying. Yeah, absolutely. happy. Any other books that you, you mentioned? I'm kind of a nerd in the way I'll pull out a textbook and look at it, but I'm not much of a reader. How about TV? What are you streaming? I stream. Um, we've got Prime. We've got uh, Netflix. But I'm pretty much a direct TV guy. I used to watch the news. So I stopped watching the news because of the pandemic and everything being gloom and doom. Um, I love sports. I was excited even when they had like cornhole tournaments on just to watch something competitive. Um, but I'm not in that regard. I'm not really much of a, a streamer. I, we, I watched a movie with my niece. Um, who's also an athletic trainer and it was uh, wonder vision. It was on Netflix. It's not really an episode or not really. It's a movie with uh, Will Ferrell and Rachel McAdams. And I think we both lost IQ points after that. after watching it. <laughs> Um, it's a funny no-brainer movie literally so um, but yeah I'd say mostly just occasionally news before the pandemic and then sports what's your favorite sports memory as a kid 1990 Cincinnati Reds Penzinger got the final out at the end of the fourth game um, and swept the A's in Oakland uh, the same year we won and this is high school but same year we won uh, our high school state football championship to this day is the only one that's been won there. So it was a good year. Um, probably I'd say that's my favorite childhood memory of sports. Do you keep your credentials? And if so, where's that collection? And there's a little caveat here because I know NCAA tournament, you don't necessarily get the credential in your role. You're getting the lapel pin. So that's a little bit different than a credential, but are so, you keeping them? Yeah. Yes. There's a lapel pins that you can see. Okay. And we're, we're zooming to, to have the face-to-face. -face. So describe what you're showing me for the listener. Correct. This is from 1995, the very first NCAA tournament game I ever was fortunate enough to be a part of. Um, Allen Iverson and John Thompson uh, beat the Xavier Musketeers in the Florida Civic Center all the way through um, last – let me think about this. Um, well, yeah, this year. I, mean, I didn't get the ones from this year. That's the A-10 tournament I did, but um, so I have these credentials that, for those of you who don't know, you have a lapel thing to see these coaches and, and staff wear. 
Uh, everyone that I've ever received, I have in a, a box in my office, just kind of a reminder of the level of success I've been fortunate to be a part of with these uh, these young athletes. So that, I have that, and then I also have at home, I got a variety of pictures and stuff up um, in my basement, uh, quote unquote man cave, if you will. It's got some student athletes that I've worked with, um, pictures of them, and then um, meaningful experiences, Elite Eight runs, and, uh, you know, Sweet Sixteens. And, and I got, oh my gosh, I got boxes and boxes of this credential to this tournament. You know, I worked at AVP one year, the same volleyball tournament. I mean, I've got a, just a variety of different credentials of, of you know, working at the Reds games in the, as an EMT. Um, so yeah, I've, I've, got, I've got them everywhere. You, you've actually inspired one last question. I'm cheating here. Um, but you've won some championships with some teams. What have you done with the piece of net that you get to cut down? Above our fireplace, uh, Mano at home, we have the word. Um, my wife got it. One of these, it says family. It's, uh, I don't know. She got it at a craft store. I don't even know where she got it. The net, the, any net that I've gotten is on that word. Because to me, it's synonymous. The level of success is measured how you influence others around you. Our two sons, right? So, my family there, my wife, and then at work, the individuals at work. To me, it's synonymous from the standpoint of being be inspirational, be helpful, be a person for others, um, be a good human being, and the rest takes care of itself. It's a perfect way to end this. Mike, thank you so much for your time. Happy to do it. Thanks. I love that Mike keeps his championship nets at home like that. I appreciate him sharing that with us and all his insights during this episode. I'd like to thank you for listening to Credentials Only, and I hope you enjoyed it. Please take a moment to leave a review wherever you are listening. Don't forget, you can find out more information on what we discussed in the show notes on credentialsonly.com. And while you're there, drop us your email address so we can slide into your inbox when we have a new episode to share. Mike Michet edits Credentials Only, which is a Holter Media production.